the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Welcome to another episode of the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. Today we're doing a host chat and I am your American dental hygiene host, Melissa. And I'm your Australian host, Tabitha. Um, We're really excited to have you on tonight. We haven't done one together in ages because my life's been a little hectic. Um, A little update, I started a new job. And I'm now um, a lecturer at the University of Sydney. And so it's just been a little bit hectic getting my life into order. Um, so <laughs> Melissa did a couple of episodes by herself and I thank you very, very much. But we're finally back together. <laughs> finally. We should yeah. cue, number one, I wanted to cue an applause when you announced your new position as a lecturer, which is so amazing. And it's just so, it's been so fun on the sideline watching you grow and and make this goal a reality. So congratulations. And then um, I want to play the song Reunited and it feels so good because I've just missed you, girl. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's been a long time and it's been horrible, but it's been, um, you know, it's really exciting to start this new role, but it's been a little overwhelming as well because the lecturing side is what I'm used to. But the admin and coordination side behind the gra- behind the scenes, because I've taken a subject coordination role as well, um, I have no idea what I'm doing, so I'm learning a lot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's it's steep. It's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? That's a great thing. Just the fact that you shared that, and and I think people don't always normalize the fact that when you're doing something new, like you just have this expectation to know it, and I feel like this kind of is going to segue into what we're going to talk about today. But like that, that harbors for us as hygienists, I think that starts as the culture in our uh, academic programs where it's like we teach you didactically, then we come into clinic and we expect you to perform these skill set clinically. But I feel like sometimes there's a little bit of a disconnect in between there because everybody we know learns a little different and some people need a little bit more guidance and we get into clinic and we almost have this like expectation like oh well you should know this because you read about it but it's a really different skill set reading versus actually doing it so here you are like doing something new and I just think we need to like talk about having grace with yourself and normalizing the fact that learning happens when we screw up like when we just have the courage to try and mess up that's when we learn and that's how we grow yeah, and you just have to be okay with asking lots of questions as well with, and, yeah. you know, obviously there's some things that you can try and wing it, but there's some things that you can't because if you get it wrong, there's consequences for not just you but other people. So you just have to be okay with going and saying, I actually don't know how to do this. Can someone show me how to do it? And can you help me yeah. this first time? Because, you know, we're, we did our scheduling for 2024 today. I had to learn how to use a new system for timetabling and, like you know it was all stuff I've never seen before so everyone was very nice and they helped and but you know you just they're things that you kind of can't figure out you need some help with so you just have to ask for it 
Yeah, definitely. So there's a, there, see, we already got a pearl within the first three minutes, like ask for help. It's okay to ask for help. <laughs> so I'm asking for today a we're gonna... my poor supervisor. <laughs> all good. I'm, I'm sure it's, it's an investment in you as a faculty member. So, and if anybody knows you, they know it's only going to take you a few minutes to get yourself up and running and then you're going to kill it. Yeah. So let's dive into the topic that we uh, wanted to chat about today. So um, we've had a couple experiences lately that just in some of the feedback we get from people in the conversations we have talking about standard of care and, and calibration. And, and this is a great topic, too, with you now being in academia and kind of looking at it from the perspective of, yeah, we prepare you with standard of care during your educational journey. And then what happens when you get out into private practice? What, why, why is there such like a lack of calibration or a disconnection that we see industry-wide? Yeah. So at first I thought I'd just explain what standard of care is. So standard of care is best defined in four element, elements and it's which you have to meet. So it's your duty of care that you as a clinician owe to your patient. Um, and it's also about what is, you know, what is their standard expectation? So, you know, what has the university set as an expectation as our standard of care? What does our governing body say as our standard of care? Um, because at the end of the day, we are 100% healthcare providers and I think we have to make sure we're always providing that. But there's ramifications when you don't. So with your insurance, through legally, with your dental board, with restrictions that can happen to you, and most importantly, the patient can end up with poor care if we're not practicing a standard of care that's acceptable. Um, so we're obviously going to focus on perio because that's our wheelhouse for Melissa and I, where we really like. And um, I think we can kind of swap between talking about standard of care and calibration, which is something that um, Melissa and I are really keen on how you calibrate as a team within your practice so that you can make sure You've got a real standard of care within the practice as well and that everybody knows that you're working to the right kind of levels that you all want to be working to. Right, right. And, you know, that kind of conversation is sprinkled with a little bit of ethics as well because it's, you know, ethically you have to be aligned with these things, your standard of care and and doing what's right, not what's easy. And, and having a strong enough ethic to be able to stand up when something office-wide may but maybe not be going to standard of care. Yeah. So I think standard of care starts with every single patient. When you see them, you screen their periodontal health. And that's a little bit different. Like we've got a lot of countries that listen from all over the world, which is really cool. Um, in Australia, standard of care is that a PSR, so a periodontal screening record is taken and it's decided whether there is health or disease. And then if there is disease, then a periodontal chart is done. Um, it's a little bit different in different countries. That's the standard of care for Australia, that you actually screen every patient and that you check. And if you do record a pocket over three millimetres, then you're meant to do a full periodontal chart. Um, what is that standard of care in America for you, Melissa? So we're taught to do a full periodontal uh, recording uh, or, or at least a like a full periodontal charting. I'm trying to find the right 
word to describe it. We should peri we should periodontal probe every surface of every tooth every time we see a patient. However, standard wise, legally, it should be documented once a year. So um, there's a lot of yeah. So we yeah, yeah. When you do the PSR, you have to probe every single tooth, but you just record it a different way. But a perio chart would have to be recorded if you scored over those threes. I think one of the things that I see, um, you know, we've both worked in specialist perio practice and we've seen patients come to us way too late in the scheme of disease. And then sometimes when I ask for historical records, because I want to know progression of disease, has this happened really fast? Has this been happening over a long period of time? Because this lets me know how aggressive it is and how, um, you know, have they had a lot of rounds of non-surgical treatments? So therefore, the maybe the perio is going to go into surgical now because they've actually had a fair few rounds and we think we'll just do one and see what happens. But a lot of the times I look at these perio charts and they don't tell me anything. You know, they're, they're not completed and that's something that is a standard of care. If you're going to charge an item number for a perio chart, then it needs to be recorded properly. So that means recording the probing depths, recording the recession, all the overgrowth, because this can really change a diagnosis. If there's overgrowth, maybe it is gingivitis, but we've just got gingival overgrowth. So they're not really six millimeter pocketing with, you know, a stage one perio that is actually gingivitis with, you know, three millimeters of gingival overgrowth. We should be looking at mobility, furcations, suppuration, bleeding on probing and if your chart allows you to, mine does, I actually chart plaque as well so that I can um, give percentage scores of, of plaque. But bleeding on probing is so important because while sometimes we don't see the reduction in probing depths at that first review appointment, we want to know if there's a reduction in bleeding because then we know there's a reduction in inflammation. If you're not seeing a reduction in bleeding, there's a big, big problem. And you can't. we don't look at periodontal disease just at probing depths. We look at the big picture of inflammation and everything that's going on. And if we narrow in and just look at one thing, we don't tell a whole story. But also you can't make a diagnosis on probing depths. We know that we make the diagnosis based on the 2017 classification update, but actually the 1999 World Workshop also told us that it was made on clinical attachment loss. So it's since 1999 we've been doing that. And so it is really important that whilst um, probing depths can play a role in shifting our diagnosis because of the severity, it is clinical attachment loss that really bases that. And it's really important that you are doing that every appointment and figuring that out. Now, not every system will do that maths for you, but, you know, it's very easy to look along and going at a plus or minus and what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 interesting because um, one practice that I was in uh, when we when I started working there, the perio charting was in the computer, and you weren't even able. It didn't have that little box on the side where you were able to to mark um, furcation grades, mobility, bleeding points, plaque, calculus. And I was like, guys, where where is this little box? Like, we don't even have all of the picture here. So. You know, you you have to not you have to as a as a clinical healthcare provider, if something is missing in your charting, you can't just like shrug your shoulders and be like, oh well, this is I guess this is all I could do. Like you have to investigate these these operating systems are set up in order for you to record this data because that data is so important in your diagnosis, in your treatment plan, 
in your patient communication. And then as Tabitha said, as we're going through treatment, it's, it's the way that we benchmark if we're, we're moving in the right direction or not. Like we need all this data. So yeah. I, I would encourage you yeah. that like, you know, just look at your own stuff. Like look at, it's okay if you weren't, I don't want you to like listen to this episode and feel like, oh my God, I wasn't doing things right. I'm terrible. I don't want you to do that. I want you to like everything that we talk about is to raise the bar and inspire and encourage others. So like whatever happened before, not a big deal. Use it as the fuel of your fire to do better moving forward. And, you know, just, just say, Hey doc, I want to start making sure that my periodontal chartings are more comprehensive and I need to put A, B, C, and D in here, but our program is limited. Um, can you help me point me in the right direction where I can make sure that we're able to chart and collect all of this data? It's like a simple conversation, but people get kind of stuck in certain things. Yeah, and I think that it's um, really important that not only for patient care, because every patient um, requires a diagnosis, you know, and when we fail to diagnose, then we fail to have informed consent because a patient needs to know what their diagnosis is to then officially really consent to treatment. And when we don't give that patient a diagnosis, then how can they really consent to the type of treatment that they're having performed if they don't actually know the status of their health? So that's really, really important. But also we need to make sure we have that diagnosis medico-legally for our notes. And it would be very hard to defend ourselves um, if we've been accused of lack of treatment or over-treatment or, you know, anything that kind of went wrong there if we didn't have a diagnosis written down and that that diagnosis has been explained to our patient as well. Right. And the staging and grading, it's not new anymore. It's been around for a while and it's, you know, there, there's so many resources, there's so many webinars, there's so many great ways to just educate yourself on how to use it properly and, and put that into your chart notes and, and, make sure that that is well documented. The other thing that that might be a little bit different, Tabitha, for us in the U.S. versus other countries is um, we don't have a lot of diagnostic codes that we use. Like there is a code for periodontal charting, but the majority of practices do not use it. Um, I don't know it off the top of my head because I have it in an explosion code in my practice. Um, but that should be utilized with, with every appointment that we don't. And here's the other thing, Tabitha, we don't charge for that. We only charge for the actual treatment. So that's where it gets a little bit sketchy here in the U.S. Because, yeah, because like historically, we're not charging for that service. We don't charge many offices like we our policy in our offices. We do oral cancer screening on every patient every time they come in for a hygiene appointment. We don't charge for it. We have a one fee for either they're getting a prophylaxis or perio maintenance or a gingivitis code. But we make sure that that code covers the extra things that we do. Should we switch it out and start putting fees to it? Yeah, I think we should, but it's challenging because patients have dental insurance. Dental insurance is going to kick that back because they don't normally pay for those things or there's not a fee associated. Actually, as I'm saying that, now I want to go and do some research and try to find out if dental insurance companies in the U.S. have a fee associated with um, periodontal charting. I know oral cancer screenings, you can charge for those and sometimes they will reimburse you, but it just really comes back to the philosophy of the practice. How is that practice set up? Do you, are you an insurance provider? Are you a fee for service provider? 
you have a little bit more wiggle room if you're a fee-for-service provider, but we don't in the U.S. really focus on diagnostic diagnostic codes like we should, especially in the hygiene room. Um, we, we're just looking at treatment. And the other piece of this puzzle is that if you have documented in your periodontal charting that you have, let's say, four, five, six millimeter pockets and bleeding on probing, and then you provide the patient with a prophylaxis, you've just put yourself into risk for uh, supervised neglect. Yeah. It's in Australia, it's a bit different. We're not as ruled by as insurance. It still plays a factor in the way people bills, but we're not as ruled as much as America. But we have a code, a 221 for periodontal um, charting. And if you're going to charge that code and take money off an insurance company or charge a patient, it is really important that you've actually provided proper periodontal charting. I do believe that we should charge separately for it because sometimes might just see a patient where you kind of just do a consult and you do their periodontal chart, provide them with their diagnosis, and then you might do treatment on another day. So it's good to have that item number there and a way to explain to the health and our health insurance pays for it. But yeah, to or if they don't have health insurance, they pay for it directly. But that is a service. It's a skill that you've provided and it's part of that diagnosis. Um, it's be interesting to know what it's like in other countries outside of Australia and US. So when you are listening to this episode, hold on to social media and pop down and say how it works in, in your country for us. I'm really interested to hear. But it is really important, like you said, um, Melissa, like I see a lot in Australia, a lot of people will perform at SR, so they'll indicate that there is disease. But then when they don't do the periodontal chart and they don't diagnose it properly and they don't recall it properly, then that's failure to diagnose and failure to treat. And that can have serious ramifications um, with your dental board and the way that and way that you are then allowed to practice in the future if any um, reprimands or notifications happen as well. It is really important that we get that diagnosis. Going back to that 2017 classification, like you said, it's no longer a new classification. It's been five years since it was rolled out worldwide. And it's really time that we all start adopting it and speaking the same language as each other. So if you're not using it in your practice yet, then I think now is a great time to get excited about using it. I actually really, really like it. I think it's great. It's a great way for communicating with patients. And exactly like Melissa said, there's heaps of webinars. There's lots of stuff online that you can access for free. Or there's paid services where you can learn more to use it. But again, I think it's that you sit down as a group with your practice and you all chat. If some of you are doing it and some of you are not doing it, that you chat about we need to get a clear communication skill and a language within our practice so that we all speak the same language with each other and with the doctors that you're referring to as well, that, you know, they all understand that this is, you know, you're speaking the same way with back and forth with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, I just grabbed and now mind you, this is an older publication, but I have a coding book from back from 2018, just so I could look up what our code is for a comprehensive periodontal evaluation, new or established patient. It's D0180. But as I'm looking at this here, here is some of the problem with what we have here. So um, it's it's encouraging you how to utilize this code in this publication that I have. And it said, um, reporting when performing comprehensive periodontal evaluation only on a qualified patient who shows signs and symptoms of periodontal disease or risk factors such as smoking and diabetes. So if you have an admin person who is reading that, 
here's where we get uncalibrated, right? And here's where we identify an admin person telling a clinician, oh, you don't have to do something. But you as a clinician don't turn around and say, but why? Because that's against the grain of what you're taught in your foundational learning as a clinician and what you tested upon to gain licensure to provide patient care. So this is this is just a great example of how we become uncalibrated. But I again, like we encourage hygienists to find their power within, use your voice, be courageous, and be able to say, I don't agree with you and this is why, and have the evidence to back up why you need a perio chart each patient if you're going to start employing using a code like this. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lot of people are worried about, oh, it takes time. But once you start doing them really regularly, you can become quite quick at them. My dental nurses send me memes of people um, trying to type as fast as they can when they're periocharting with me all the time <laughs> and say, you're too fast. We can't keep but, you know, I'm just, I've done them a lot now, so I can, I can get that done quite quite fast as we're, we're moving around. But it is something that is really important in a patient that has gingival disease that we're charting that properly and making that diagnosis so that the patient knows the extent of the disease. If we don't diagnose the properly, then us as clinicians don't know how serious the disease is and either does the patient. We need to know, is it localised or generalised? How severe is it? And what is the risk of progression of this disease as well? These are all things that need to be communicated to the patient along with a prognosis. You know, what prognosis are we giving these teeth? Are we, you know, a patient should know if you think a tooth has a hopeless prognosis or a poor prognosis or, you know, a questionable prognosis. There's many different prognosis systems out there. Like the university in London makes us use Quok and Catton. I hate that one. Uh, we use a different one at the University of Sydney, which I find a lot easier. I don't think it matters which prognosis classification system you use. What I think is more important is that you pick one, you calibrate as a team on how to use it, and then that's the one your team uses. There's many out there. It's not like the classification of Perio system where there's one system and you use that. Um, prognosis systems, there's a couple out there. Pick the easiest one for you to use in your practice, calibrate and use it so that you can communicate that risk and prognosis to your patients effectively. Absolutely. And we'll drop um, links to that in the show notes as well for you guys to be able to look over and see what works for you. Um, and I just want to circle back, Tabitha, because you mentioned about the speed of periodontal charting. And one of the things American hygienists don't have generally is a dental nurse. We don't have a dental assistant working with us typically. There are some practices that do, but that's generally in an accelerated hygiene type of schedule where the assistant is there to help you. <laughs> the assistant is there to help you as a clinician, um, maybe take I'm radiographs. I'm pulling the face. Or... Well, you <laughs> I heard the, <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, it's really like you're as the practitioner, you're popping in and, and you've got about 30 minutes to perform a periodontal charting and then perform your, your prophylaxis or whatever type of debridement that patient requires and do your education. So it ends up, you know, you're seeing double the patients. You do have help. Somebody's doing the, the radiographs, flipping the room and so on and so forth. Um, but a lot of times, you know, that's unfortunately in 30 minutes, it's really hard to provide standard of care, even with assisted help. So um, it, it's challenging. I think what's really important though is, is that a lot of people ask, 
you know, or say I don't have enough time, but there's nothing wrong with doing the prenatal charting and then rebooking the patient for for prenatal treatment. And I actually think that's sometimes a better way so that the patient has time to absorb the diagnosis, absorb the prognosis, and consent to this change I, I, of treatment as 100% well. That's really agree. important. And um, you know, having having the ability to be able to make that professional judgment call is something that again goes back to practice calibration. And discussing that with either your co-hygienists and your your doctor and your office manager so that you have the freedom and the flexibility to make that call chair-side with the patient. Um, but having having technology helps in this department too. So you, there's a lot of different voice-activated periodontal programs that are on the market now. Um, and they can give you a really quick uh, calculation. Some of them even help you stage and grade. Um, but having that percentage of bleeding points time to time and educating your patient as to like... What are our goals? What are our goals for this treatment? Like, this is the treatment. This is your disease. This is the treatment I'm proposing. This is the prognosis. What are the goals here as we move through the stages of this treatment? And I've switched my verbiage a few years ago, just saying to patients, like, we need to put this disease into remission. I had a patient yesterday who said, oh, I had Lanap surgery, you know, 10 years ago. I thought they cured my periodontal disease. And I had to have a whole conversation about how periodontal disease is technically not cured. It's just put into remission. And we, we work yeah. together to allow it to not reactivate. And that's the goal here yeah. is that not to let this disease reactivate and become uh, active again. And I think that's really, really important that part of that explaining a diagnosis, it's important to then explain that explain that we are like we use the exact same um wording you know in remission and i think that's very important so that patients don't go and think i'm getting this one-off clean and i'll be cured or i won't need maintenance or i won't need this they need to understand that now this risk is carried for life and that's why in the, the new staging and grading whilst we can retrogress in a grading in our um, risk factors, we can't retrogress in our actual diagnosis. So once you get diagnosed with stage one, two, three, or four, you can only stay the same or move up a grade, but you can't move back because they recognize that that risk of where you were diagnosed at stays for life. So if you get diagnosed at stage four, you stay stage four for the rest of your life. Or if you get diagnosed at stage one, two, or three, you can only stay there or increase in stage and that's it. And that's because they really wanted to make that showing that that risk never goes away. You have periodontal disease for the rest of your life. It's just whether it's active or inactive. Absolutely. That's such a great point to make, uh, especially in, in academia too, because students are learning this and scratching their heads and not really understanding. And then seeing that change in pocket depth, I think, you know, as we move through treatment confuses them even more. So that's such a great point to make about that tab. I love the way you explained it. Yeah. And I just think that um, it can feel overwhelming when you've got to change a system, you know, but what's really important is, you know, there's years of new grads now that have been using this system. There's many of us that have adopted. You don't want to get left behind. And you don't want to be, you know, having that you're not explaining some things changed in the way we're diagnosing and we're taking into a lot more risk factors and risk of progression now. And if you're not using the new system, then you're not taking all of those risk factors kind of into account the same way. And we don't want to be not informing our patients about things that, you know, can benefit them in their treatment, 
or in their long-term management of their diseases. Definitely. We've said it before on the show and we'll say it again. What you don't do is as important as what you do do. And um, patients, like we, we are such a huge piece in the healthcare puzzle for our patients. And if we're not educating them the links of periodontal disease with their systemic health, we're doing our patients a disservice. And, you know, that's going to fight, just that education alone is going to fight the insurance battle for us because we're empowering our patient to make a decision on their healthcare based on knowledge rather than what someone else is going to reimburse and what somebody else has designated as an appropriate charge or a sequence for treatment without looking at the individual person in front of us. And that's what we, you know, here in the U.S., we take an oath upon graduation. And in this oath, we, we, commit to providing a standard of care and being lifelong learners and and progressing our profession forward. And medical science keeps on moving us, moving that needle and finding these connections for us. So sometimes we have to look beyond dentistry to understand the importance of what we're doing in, in educating our patients with their periodontal disease, um, screening them. It's, it's all, it all comes together. So if you have that and you're educating yourself on that, it's really easy to adjust the way that you do your medical history intake so that you can ask these motivational interviewing questions and, and, and find out if there is a possible genetic predisposition uh, for a systemic disease, that periodontal disease we know is not just, um, we have causal evidence, we know that it, it is connected to that. So do your homework and that's going to help fight those little battles of conversations that you have. And you have to dig a little bit deep and be courageous to be able to Share this information with your patients because it may be the first time that they're hearing it, but I could tell you that they're so grateful and thankful when you do have these conversations with them. Some of them will give you pushback and that's okay. That's where the calibration with your team is so important because if someone gives you pushback and they say, yeah, 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 I just want my cleaning. I want what my insurance is going to pay for. You need to be able to have the backing from your practice to turn around and say, hey, Mr. Jones, I hear you. I understand the philosophy in this practice is that we don't, um, we don't provide supervised neglect. And uh, although I've discussed this case with you, you're still asking me to provide you with a standard of care that is below what your uh, diagnosis requires. And although you may find a provider somewhere else that would be willing to, to give you what you're asking for, that's not the philosophy of care in our practice here. How would you like me to proceed? And let them tell you what they want you to do. Yeah. And that's it. But that comes from team calibration and having these conversations. You can't, you won't feel, you'll second guess yourself if you try to go head on with a patient like that without knowing you have the backing from your admin team and your doc. So it's really important to have those conversations and, and do some role playing uh, with your team so that you could be prepared for these things. Because it's not if it's going to happen, it's when. Yeah, and I think um, going back to, you know, like calibrating and adopting new things, as clinicians, we make that commitment that we will keep learning, that we will keep, you know, progressing and changing as science and research does. That's why we do continuing education. We don't graduate and just stay the same. Otherwise, we still have pedal drills and, you know, horrible dentistry. It's only because of progression and evolving that we're where we're here today. Otherwise, we wouldn't have preventative dentistry at all. We would just still be drilling and filling. 
and extracting. So, you know, um, innovation, research, progression, they're, they're essential in dentistry, but it's what makes dentistry keep getting better and better and better. So, you know, for some people, we've talked about this before on the podcast, some people change is hard. Um, you and I, Melissa, we're very similar, like we quite like change and embrace it a lot. But it is really important that as as a profession, whether you find change hard or not, that you have to just learn to embrace it within your profession and to grow and to accept new research and, and to, you know, want to keep learning because that's what will make you a good clinician and help you provide the best level of care to your Absolutely. patients Absolutely. Well. And it's, it's all about you know, just kind of having that feeling of purpose inside too, because if you're feeling like you're making a positive impact on your patient's life with the care that you're providing and the education you're providing and and being able to help them reduce risk factors for debilitating systemic diseases like heart attack, stroke, diabetes, Alzheimer's, dementia, that's, that's so for me, that that lights my fire. That's what gets me so passionate about the work we get to do. Like that, you know, we're not we're not here to just pick off calculus and polish teeth. That's that's maybe where we started, but that's as Tabitha said, that's not where we are today. And we don't do anything. Thank and, God. And yeah, exactly. Like I, I probably said it before on here, and I'll say it again. Like I'm I'm so grateful for Dr. Phones creating our profession and. Irene Newman being the first dental hygienist, but Lord, I don't practice like her and I don't want anyone else to today either. Yeah. Like we, we have so much technology and we're, we're on the brink of technology really changing our lives. So let's embrace the piece of it that will have a positive impact on what we do and increasing our workflows and our productivity and being able to educate our patients because it's that education component is key. If we don't educate ourselves, we can't then provide our patients with proper education, but, um, having the time to do that and having these conversations is so important. And that's where technology I think is going to really in the coming years, change the way we do things. A hundred percent. And then, so moving on from like, you've done your perio chart, then we need a form of x-rays to help with our perio diagnosis as well. This is where Australia and America and the UK differ a little bit because I do a little bit, you know, I'm learning a little bit through my master's there. In Australia, we would take less full mouth um, periapical screening and we would do an OPG instead. A lot of practices in Australia have an OPG or you can actually get a free OPG paid for by the government at a clinic as well and have that sent into your practice um, paid under the Medicare What is an OPG? Is that a panoramic radiograph? Yeah, so panoramic. Yeah, so what we that's what we call a panoramic and OPG. Um, so we can get a panoramic X-ray for free for our patient, or we can make the take them in house if we have one. Most practices have one in house, and then we would take smaller, specific periapical X-rays or bite wing X-rays where needed. Now, most people to, in Australia, it's standard of care to take bite wing X-rays to look for caries every two years, um, and then we take our panoramic X-ray dependent on. Um, if for perio, it might take more often, but we would take screening ones every five years. Um, otherwise, with perio, you may take it more frequently. And then after you've got your panoramic x-ray, that would decide where you want to take periapical x-rays if you need more detail. 
But I know for you, Melissa, you guys take more like full mount series. Yeah, things, yeah. Right? So it really kind of, it, it's, again, if we look at insurance standards, which seems to be the driving force of dictating care in, in the United States, it's either a PAN or an FMS. They will allow it in a frequency of a window of three to five years, depending on how the, the, um, the insurance policy is written. So uh, some offices will just just do an FMS. I've seen in many practices, they do an FMS for a new patient, and then that patient 10 years down the road has never had an FMS again, um, or a panoramic radiograph. So it's it's a little bit discouraging when, when we're not providing as a profession, we're not making sure that we're checking those things and, and updating accordingly, especially when patients have risk factors, um, systemic risk factors, or uh, dental risk factors where they've had uh, endodontic treatments and, you know, implants, and we're not taking a look at the uh, apices of these, these teeth and, and implants and making sure that there's no issues. So yeah, it's generally every three to five years pan, uh, for either an FMS or a pan and then bite wings. The standard is to be done, uh, annually. Then there's vertical versus horizontal. That's a whole nother debate. But when we have patients that have periodontal disease, we should be taking, uh, our vertical, Radio, uh, vertical bite wings because we we know that we're not going to be able to see the bone. So if we're going to practice ARLA, which is the lowest amount of radiation possible for our patients, we should make sure that the radiographs that we're choosing to take are of the most diagnostic quality for that case and that patient with their history. And then once we've got these x-rays, so depending on what the standard of care is or how you take them in your country, we want to use them to look at bone loss patterns. So when we're looking at periodontal disease, this will change stage. You know, is it horizontal or is there vertical bone loss patterns? Um, how much bone is gone? Looking at that um, bone height and looking at that bone loss to age ratio. And one of the really important things about wanting to know whether it's horizontal or vertical is horizontal bone loss is obviously a lot easier to treat. And vertical bone loss is a lot more difficult. It's more complex. It's harder for us as clinicians to treat, harder for the patient to maintain. And these are often where we end up seeing surgical interventions as well. So, you know, a vertical vertical bone loss will actually increase the stage because we know that risk is, is more. And we also want to know how much bone loss they've had. You know, is it 10%? Is it 20%? Is it 30%? Again, that helps us determine the stage when we know the percentage of bone loss. But then once we know our bone loss to age ratio, that helps us look at the risk because if someone, if we're looking at two radiographs and one person's 44 and one person's 78, but they have the same amount of bone loss, then that 44 person has a much more severe form of that disease because they've got so much bone loss. And it is really important that if they've got a high bone loss to age ratio, we realize that they're a high risk patient and they're treated and they're also informed of that as well. Yeah, the, those are really great uh, points. And how how uh, do most people, like what are you using programs to look at the percentage of bone loss? Like I know we have a lot of great things coming on the scene now with AI to be able to do that for us. But in a, you know. So you can, yeah, you can do it a couple of ways. You're, if you use um, Florida Probe, it actually tells you a bone loss to age ratio for you. Um, you can use periotools.com and fill in all the details, or you can look at your periapical x-ray, look at the apex, look at the crown, go, that's 100%. And then where is the bone loss? So that's 40%. You can go to a graph and figure out their age to the 40%, or you can do a formulation. So there's so many different ways to do it. 
Um, it's just about figuring out the easiest way uh, for you. You know, there's some cases, which I'm sure you do the same, Melissa, like you look and you're like, yeah, that's a one. That's a greater than one. You're 44 and you've got more than 50% of your bone loss generalized. You've got to, you know, straight away, you know that there are grade C, greater than one. It's just once you get, once you do it a lot, you'll actually start to know those age loss to bone ratios pretty quickly. Um, but there's definitely heaps of cheat ways for when you first start as that's well. That's such a great uh, pearl right there too. And how how are our new clinicians who are coming into the scene and maybe don't have the confidence in themselves to have these types of conversations? So let's play devil's advocate here. So you say, uh, "Hey, Mr. Jones, you haven't been here in a in a few years." Uh, the last time we took an FMS on you was in 2016, and I'd really like to update that today for you. Uh, and they have a history of perio, and you know this is a clinician, and the patient automatically says no. What is your pearl of advice tab for that new clinician to turn around and, and encourage that patient to go down the road we want them to go down? I think that explaining first why you want to take it, um, you know, we want to have a look at that change in bone or this is what we're screening from. But then also, once you have explained and the patient says no, they're a consenting adult and that's their choice. Do you know what I mean? So you need to document that. Um, you know, so then I, I will say to the patient sometimes, I'm just letting you know that you haven't consented. So I just will put this in my notes that you haven't consented and these are the things that I may miss or I may not know so that they are very aware of what that is. And then sometimes when you say it like that, they're like, actually maybe I will get that or maybe I will consent to this but you know sometimes people aren't consenting because they can't afford it and you know and then you can make a decision as a clinician do you just want to take that x-ray for free do you maybe just want to charge them insurance only or are you not going to do it and there's no right or wrong answer there you know occasionally I have said to patients I just really want the x-ray and I won't charge you for it because I've just really wanted it as part of my diagnostics and to have a look. And then there's other times where we just haven't taken the x-ray. Um, you know, and that will go down to a discussion that you have with your employers as well, what you're allowed to do and how much um, leeway you have in that area. You know, we're really lucky that because we can send out the panoramic x-rays for free, if someone can't afford to get it in-house, we can just send them out to get it for free. But occasionally you'll have people that will say no because they're worried about the radiation levels. And that's when you need to be well-informed to explain that it is very low risk, especially with new digital technology, and that the risk is quite low to them. Um, you know, older x-rays, you know, we used to put on a lot. We don't use lead coats anymore in Australia for small x-rays inside. And we, um, you know, we know that the radiation risk is quite low. So explaining that to patients, sometimes they weren't aware of that before. Or I know I've had patients post-chemo and radiation who haven't wanted any radiation exposure and you just have to respect those wishes as well. So once we've determined bone loss patterns, we've looked at vocations, we've looked at the complexities, and we've determined that stage as part of our diagnosis, we've then got to be thinking about our grading. And this is where our medical history comes into um, play very heavily as well. So obviously we use that um, bone loss to age ratio. We can look at historical bone loss, but you may not have that. So you just you don't answer it if you don't know we look at what that plaque to inflammation levels are and destruction, so the phenotype, and then we have those grade modifiers. 
our HbA1c and our smoking status. And this is why it's really important that we're asking these questions in our medical history. And we're not just recording, do you have diabetes? But we need to know, is it controlled? Because we know if it's uncontrolled and we've got that HbA1c of above seven, it can increase our risk of um, perioprogression. And also if you're a non-smoker versus smoking less than 10 a day to smoking more than 10 a day. A question I get on social media a lot is vaping. And people say to me, oh, like, where do we put vaping in the grading? And really it's about, it's the same risk. We don't have long-term studies on it yet because it's a newer system. But I would just, you know, if they're vaping, I'd be putting them at the same risk. What I find really hard is that I find vapors have unreliable information on the quantity that they vape. Do you find the same thing, Melissa? Yeah, it's hard for them to really track it. And then when you ask them a question associated with that, they kind of look at you like a deer in headlights. So I, I think it's it's a great start of a conversation to realize that they may be consuming more than they even realize and to talk about the health risk associated with it. But yeah, it's definitely a, a trickier thing. And then now also having the, the cannabis conversation as well. Um, as that has become legalized in many places in the United States. So now that's another uh, factor that we have to consider. Yeah. So those are, those are, you need a lot of courage to have those kind of conversations with your patients. And it's important that, so I had a patient recently, oh, she's only 42, very stressed, high stress job, um, suspected eating disorder on my end, not confirmed, but I think there might be. Um, mm-hmm. She goes, you know, forgets to eat. A lot of days she's very underweight um grade four stage c perio at 42 um Oof. yeah more than 50 percent generalized bone loss and smoking 30 to 40 cigarettes a day and I was oh my goodness very honest with my smoking sensation it has to stop like we're not going to get results we're not going to go anywhere without having the smoking stop and I said to her, I realize you're probably not going to be able to stop completely straight away, but we have to be looking at ways to reduce. And I um, referred her off to Quit Australia, which is an organization, and to her GP and said, you know, I think you need help and you need to do something about it. Anyway, this was the initial consult. Um, I did initial therapy. I saw her for a six-week review. At a six-week review, I asked her about her smoking status again because we don't just ask once and never check in because it can increase and decrease. And she said to me, I've quit smoking. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazeballs. And so, like, I started doing a little dance. And I'm like, that, I'm just blown away because, you know, I knew how heavy she smoked. And I'm like, how did you do it? And she goes, I just went cold turkey. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I'm thinking, I gave the best motivational smoking sensation ever. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, this works. She listened. This is amazing. And I was like, we should dance. We should celebrate. And she was, like, laughing. And I'm like, this is so good. And I'm like, was it hard? She's like, no, not at all. She's like, I was really motivated after I saw you. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm amazing. Anyway, we, we get you are stereo chart. <laughs> and I'm thinking the tissues don't look great. Still, like, like, you know, I haven't yeah. had as much change in the tissues as I like. But anyway, we're, we're moving around. We're doing stuff. And then she just said to me, I'm really, you know, I'm not going to vape for too long. And I was like, what? No. <laughs> and then I was like, ugh. 
So for her, she thought she'd quit smoking and all her risks were gone. And I was like, and I didn't do any vaping talk when she was there last time because she didn't vape. But then I was messing her up and I had to talk about, actually, we've gone nowhere. Um, You've just taken one habit and swapped it to another habit. She was vaping probably more than she would have smoked with a nicotine vape that she was buying from overseas. And I was just like, so, you know, there's a lot of education that needs to go into vaping from us to our um, patients, especially when they're buying vapes, that they're still receiving that nicotine. And it's the nicotine that is going to cause these issues. So it is it was it was frustrating, but a lot of the times on our medical histories, if we put smoke, a patient's not going to disclose that they vape. So, you know, we need right. to change our medical histories to do you smoke, use electronic cigarettes, any sort of, you know, vaping tool. Otherwise, we're not going to get the whole story a lot of the time as well. Absolutely. And that's kind of how vaping is was marketed initially is like, oh, stop smoking, start vaping. Yeah. And. You know, so yeah, we we do have to uh, look at, you know, and one thing at a time, we're covering a lot of stuff today. And if you're like, not even like up to date with your perio perio charting, and you need to just start with one thing, start there, start doing, I've said to offices too, or other clinicians as well that are like, Hey, I just got to a practice and there's been zero perio charting for years. What do I do? I'm so overwhelmed. Um, nobody has FMSs. Everyone has subgingival calculus. Like I am fighting a huge battle here. And it's like control the controllable. Do what you can in the allotted amount of time that you have. And if it means that you're updating FMSs and doing a perio chart and initially you're getting your periodon- your probing depth because you're a solo by yourself, you're getting your probing depth and you're getting your bleeding points. Collect what you can initially and then make your diagnosis. And then when they come back in, you can collect the rest of the data and update the chart accordingly. Because sometimes it's extremely overwhelming. And when you come in, there's, there's, you know, when you're trying to provide standard of care and it hasn't been there on the back end previously, you have a lot of time spent educating patients as to why you're doing something completely different from what was done previously. And it's a tap dance that you have to perform because you need to educate them without throwing the office that you're practicing in under the bus at the same time. So it's a challenge. So my suggestion is, you know, we're covering a lot of things and this is coming from a very comprehensive standpoint. So if you're starting at ground zero, just do one thing at a time. And if it's just implementing the, the updating the radiographs and the perio charting and focusing on pocket depths and bleeding points initially, so you can have these disease conversations Focus on that. When you get them back for non-surgical treatment, reprobe the quadrants you're treating anyway, and then you can add in what you didn't collect on that that first time. And I just think that, um, you know, sometimes you can walk up to a practice where they haven't been educated properly and patients will ask questions like, why wasn't I told this before? You know, I'm a big believer in not ever throwing a clinician underneath the bus so I just say, all I can comment on is what I see today. All I can tell you is what I'm witnessing today and I can just give you a diagnosis of what's happening today because that can be a tricky conversation sometimes. Absolutely. Especially if you're in a team where you're not the only hygienist and you came into a practice and, and 
that's the standard that's going on. And now you, you know, you have this tough, you're in this tough ethical spot because you're excited. It's a new position. It's a new practice. You're ready to, to go in there and do your thing. And you kind of open up the charts and see, oh, okay, periodontal charting hasn't been done. Oh, okay, this patient hasn't had uh, FMS in 10 years. And there's a lot of opportunity for you to grow and, and establish your column as a very productive hygienist, just meeting the disease that's that's sitting in the practice. But <clears throat> as a person, that could be tricky to navigate because, you know, you're coming in and you're doing the, all the hard things to make sure that you're doing the job appropriately. And if somebody else isn't, that comes in almost as a threat. So it's it's very difficult. And I, I'm uh, alongside with Tabitha, it's not to throw anyone else under the bus. You just have to, I can only speak to my yeah. interaction with you today. And this is the findings that, that we have. Yeah, 100%. And then, you know, it's important that we do that grading. And it's the most exciting thing I find about the new diagnosis is so that we can then communicate that risk and then the patient Mm -hmm. knows especially with those grade modifiers that if I reduce my smoking or quit smoking or if I control my diabetes I can decrease the risk and so you know a patient they don't know so we need to patient is any recipient of healthcare services that are performed by healthcare sorry Suri just came on everyone (laughs) Really important that they understand that so that we can explain that risk to them as well. So it's they need to know that otherwise they, you know, they don't have exposure to this before. We can't expect them to have our level of knowledge. So we need to impart that onto them. Absolutely. I think that's such a hugely profound statement that you just said is that we we kind of assume people know things yeah. and they don't. We assume that when we see an adult, like 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 the patient Tabitha was just describing, a 42-year-old woman, we assume that they have dental intelligence and they don't. They're not literate the way we assume that they are. So we, we really sometimes have to, you know, find that way to communicate, really get back down to the basics without being... Um, making them feel bad or shamed or anything. It's not about that. It's about helping them understand, meeting them where they are, taking them where we need them to go so that they can make better decisions for their health. It's not just about their teeth or their oral health. It's about their overall health. And that's where I love the grading as well, because you've got to look at that bio burden from the biofilm. That should definitely be a factor that we're looking at uh, in, yeah. in that bigger picture when we're, we're selecting yeah. a grade. And then once we've established that diagnosis in our head, the way we communicate this to the patient is really important as well. You know, for me, I've started communicating a diagnosis before I know it because I'm setting the patient up to explain why I'm doing the perio chart, why this is happening. So then yeah. why I'm asking these questions so that when we're giving that diagnosis, they've already got a little bit of the why in the back of their head. And they're already, you know, have had little bits of information throughout before we get that. But then explaining to them what that actual diagnosis is and what it means. And, you know, I use flip charts and talking and different things, but it's important that patient understands that. 
Yeah. And, and you know what, if you explain to the patient, especially a new one, what you're going to be doing today um, in your, you know, first patient appointment, I always say it, this is a, we're getting to know each other. So I'm going to be collecting a lot of data today and I'm going to be explaining to you um, the results of that data and what we see and where you are right now in time. And then we'll discuss the, the, based on what our findings are, uh, what the recommendations we have to get you healthy and keep you healthy, because that is our goal in this practice, is that we want to you to have oral health and sustain oral health. And um, I, my area of expertise is within the, the gum tissue and the bone that holds your teeth in place. That's where I live. Uh, doctor across the hall, he's going to live in the area where your teeth are, you know, your actual tooth structure and your bone as well because he's perio. Um, but he's he, he's concerned about the um, more of the functionality of your teeth. I'm concerned of the foundation of your teeth. So that's why we work really well together to make sure you as a whole is functioning appropriately. So when you kind of tell them your role versus the doctor's role, it, it creates this um, sense of this is my wheelhouse as the hygienist. Like they look at you as the expert in this area now. So it really kind of helps. Um, and I agree with Tabitha hundred percent. If you really explain right from the get go, what you're doing, you're taking this patient on a journey during the appointment so that they understand by the time you get to that diagnosis and they're, they're more open to hearing what you have to say rather than um, I just came yeah. for my cleaning. Right? And then I think it's important to communicate as well that, what the treatment plan is in full so the treatment plan isn't just your intervention it is the oral hygiene instructions that you're expecting of them maybe some diet changes that you're expecting from them the smoking sensation all of those things and also it's not just the next appointment you know is it going to be you know we're going to do initial therapy then we expect to review it may not work so there could possibly be a specialist referral if you're not in specialist practice when you're seeing these patients, they need to know that it isn't guaranteed. You know, we don't have success in 100% of cases. Um, we have high success rates in non-surgical right. perio, but it's not 100%. So, you know, you know, if it's an easy case, if it's gingivitis, I'm like, yeah, we'll be able to reverse this, we'll do this. But in a stage four perio case, something like that, it might get worse. We may not get better. It may need to, you know... They need surgical right. intervention. We may not get hold of it even with surgical intervention, especially if they're not doing the home care. That's really important to explain. Absolutely. I always tell my patients that uh, 80% of their result is what they do at home. 20% is what you do, what I do with them while they're here. Uh, I say, and it really I helps say we all know I want to be the star of the show, but I'm not. It's you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, we all know I'd love to say I did it, but actually it's you. You have to do it. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm your coach. I'm here to guide you along the way. I, I do a, my piece in this is small. It's all it's all yeah. really you at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's true. Yeah, and it's a hundred percent true. But I think um we'll wrap it up there for tonight because we've talked for an hour about this section. But I think this deserves a follow-up of then how we then document all of this and also what those next steps in that treatment planning is. Yep. And then we can talk out some cases, some uh, tough cases that Tabitha yeah. and I have also had chairside. Oh, we love Perry. Can you tell? I know. I got a new badge the other day and it's 
a little pin and it says Perio Slayer and I wear it everywhere. <laughs> so I think we're going to say goodbye to our internet issues for tonight. I hope everyone has a fantastic evening or morning wherever you're listening around the world. Sorry for a couple little technical details. Hopefully we edit most of them out and we hope you have a great um, day. Bye. Listening and just remember, keep on disrupting. We'll see you next time. Hey, thank you again so much for tuning into the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We love to hear from you viewers and we love that you join us for our episodes. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leave us a review. We love reading reviews from all over the world. It's one of the things that actually makes all the hard work feel really worth it when we get to see which episodes you're enjoying or some feedback that you give. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or write something on our Facebook or our Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening. Keep on disrupting.